Continuing our uh, worship through the reading of scripture from the Gospel of Mark. So if you would go ahead and stand with me and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, we'll be reading verses 24 through 37. This is the word of God. And from there, he, that is Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephphathatha, that is, be open. And his ears were open, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. You may all have a seat. As you do, would you join with me as we uh, come to the Lord in prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace, reminded that there is none like you. You are the everlasting God. You are faithful and just in all your ways. You are sovereign and all-powerful. You're wise and all-knowing. And you love us in Christ more than we will ever know. We are humbled by your greatness and thankful for your grace. And we exalt you as king over our lives and as Lord of this church. Like the Gentiles we just read about who came to Christ by faith, we come as beggars, broken and in need, desperate need of your mercy. For our hearts are deceitful and desperately sick, and only you can heal us. Would you forgive us for our sins? Forgive us, especially of our pride, for not loving you 
and for not loving our spouse, our children, our neighbors, even our enemies, as we should. Forgive us for the ways we fail to trust your promises and obey your commands. And we place our faith entirely on Christ, our Savior, the one mediator between God and men, who stood in our place and offered himself as a sacrifice and substitute for our sin. And we thank you that he lived and died and rose again, not only to rescue us from hell, but to make us your children and to bring us into your household, the church, and to continually transform us into his likeness. In light of this great mercy, may we daily submit our lives to following you. Help us to live no longer for ourselves or to do what is right in our own eyes, but for the glory of Christ, who is our Redeemer. Grow us in your word, that we might know your good, acceptable, and perfect will, and live according to it. Help us to seek first your kingdom, your will, and your righteousness in our hearts, in our homes, in our church, and in the world in which we live. This very day, as our nation celebrates its independence, we are thankful that we live in a time and place where we can enjoy certain freedoms, even in the midst of a global pandemic. We do not take it for granted, the privilege we currently have to gather and worship, or presume upon your grace, knowing that it can be taken away from us at any moment. At the same time, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. Many live in countries where Christian persecution abounds. Would you help them to stand firm in the truth that they might not compromise their faith or be ashamed of the gospel? We pray as well for our nation's leaders, from President Biden to members of Congress and the judicial courts. Would you bring them to faith and repentance in Christ? Open their eyes to see that there is salvation in no one else and that there is no other name, even among the greatest, the richest, and most powerful of men by which we must be saved. We also lift up the victims and family members of the condo collapse in Florida last week. We cannot begin to imagine the pain and the sorrow they are going through. And we pray and mourn with them. And as their lives have been shattered to pieces, would you draw them to the place of true, lasting peace and comfort in Christ? In light of this tragic event, may we ourselves be reminded that tomorrow is not promised to any of us. Help us to examine our own lives and to number our days. For even Christ spoke back in his days, when a tower fell upon a group of people in Siloam, that unless we repent, we will all likewise perish. And so we pray for our own hearts, for those who might be struggling with unrepentant sin, and for anyone here or listening online who has not yet turned to Christ, would your mercy and kindness lead us to repentance. We continue to acknowledge your shepherding care and protection over our church. We thank you that you have given us every resource we need to fulfill your high calling for us. Together, may we be wholly devoted to Christ. 
Grow us to live out with joy the privilege of belonging to you and to one another. Stir our hearts to love one another, to treasure your word, and to be burdened for lost souls. Help us to be salt and light in a dark and hopeless world, to proclaim your truth with grace but without compromise, and to be a visible witness of the gospel as we lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. Finally, for this morning, we pray for the preaching of your word. We are thankful for the scripture's clarity, its necessity, its authority, and sufficiency over our lives. Would your spirit be with Pastor Mark as he teaches us now, and soften our hearts to receive your truth, that we might live by your every word. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Tad, for shepherding our hearts and sharing the fellowship of the King with each and every one of us and Peter and praise team. What a joy to sing the praises of our Lord and celebrate His grace and to do so together. So praise team, thank you so much. And Boy, you should all be running up to Peter and grabbing that book, putting your name down. It was a joy and privilege this morning to uh, gather before service and to pray. And we do so every Sunday. Uh, Kevin Al leads that at 9, 10. And I would just invite the whole church to come beforehand and just enjoy that time to share your burdens, to pray for one another, and to enjoy the fellowship of the King that we share the glory of the gospel. One other thing, uh, we are moving as a church toward, we're not, that means we're not there yet. We're moving towards mask optional worship. Okay, and I'm going to ask you as a church to continue to pray for that. Uh, For those of you who have raised concerns, and some of you have, and I just want to thank you for coming to the elders and sharing your burdens with us. There are still some concerns. Uh, Our church, my understanding, is it's like 99.9% adult vaccinated. That's my understanding. Um, But at the same time, the children are not. And so some have raised concerns about how best we can care for the children with masks, without masks, and so on. And so um, I want to thank you for your patience. The elders are prayerfully working on this behind the scenes to provide the best possible arrangement that we can. So number one, that we honor the Lord and that Christ and his gospel is what unites us, not mass or no mass. But number two, so we can care for everybody and as a church family, we can love one another as Christ has loved us. So we covet your prayers. Stay tuned. Thank you for your patience. But we are moving in that direction. Well, it's the 4th of July. And uh, I hope some of you have fireworks planned for this evening. And I I do want to wish you a blessed 4th of July, Independence Day. And this is a day in America that's set apart as all of us raised in America, and that's not me. But you'll recall this is a celebration of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, That declaration that was officially made July 4th, allegedly written July 2nd, 
but made official July 4, 1776. And this was the declaration made by the Continental Congress that declared that the 13 American colonies were no longer subject or subordinate to the tyranny and the rule of King George III of Great Britain. It's that declaration that these 13 colonies were now united, that they were free, and that they were independent states. And this was in response, as you'll recall, to an overwhelming conviction that King George III and the Parliament of Great Britain had abused their authority and their rule over the colonies. And they had done so by ignoring and trampling upon the basic and alleged God-given unalienable rights of what? If you're visiting with us, you know you can... When I invite you, you can, you can speak. Unalienable rights of what? Life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. Absolutely. And over time, along with our Constitution, it is this declaration that has come to define what America is, what it stands for, what we fight for, and what we defend. These unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, allegedly for all men. Now, it's worth noting that the men who wrote that Declaration of Independence all had slaves when they wrote that. But, allegedly for all men. This is very much what we fight over in America today and what divides us. Now, some of you know... I'm an immigrant, and so some of this was new to me. And as an immigrant who was born in Canada, but later chose, and yes, I did, I chose to become an American citizen, I personally love America. And I'm grateful to America. And I'm thankful to God for America. And I do believe for all its shortcomings, this side of heaven, America is in many ways the best, if not one of the best countries in the entire world. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. But brothers and sisters, I'm also mindful that my true and real citizenship is in heaven. I'm mindful that I'm still an immigrant and I'm just passing through. And I'm mindful that my true citizenship is in heaven because my true King and Lord is neither Donald Trump or Joe Biden. My true King and Lord is Christ Jesus. And my true ethnicity and race is not Asian American. My true ethnicity and race is the church, the ecclesia, the people of God. That is my race. And my true family, brothers and sisters, is you all, the household of God. And this is all because, brothers and sisters, my true declaration of independence is not a 250-year-old document penned Primarily by a slave-owning deist. 
My true declaration of independence, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. The good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And this is because, brothers and sisters, the independence and freedom I so desperately need is not freedom of speech, it's not freedom of religion, it's not freedom from systemic racism, it's not freedom or the right to bear arms, it's not even freedom of worship. And that's not to belittle those rights, brothers and sisters. But that's not the freedom I so desperately need. Brothers and sisters, the freedom I so desperately need is freedom from sin and death. Very specifically, freedom from my sin. And there is only one declaration that can set any man free from the power and the rule of sin and death. And that declaration, brothers and sisters, is the declaration God in love made at the cross. The declaration God in love has made through the life and through the death and through the resurrection of His eternal and holy Son, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, brothers and sisters. And that's the declaration I so desperately need. And that brings us to our first point this morning. And I'm going to ask the AV team if you could help me with that. Our first point this morning, brothers and sisters, is that the gospel is the power of God for salvation in Christ. Now, I I wish I had come up with that on my own, but it's actually the Apostle Paul who came up with that, and it was Martin Luther who made that popular in the Reformed Church. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Now, this past spring, we've walked through the book of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 3. And this coming fall, Lord willing, if Jesus doesn't come first, our hope and intent is to begin the gospel of Matthew. The God-breathed eyewitness account from Matthew the tax collector, also known as Levi, of the life and ministry and the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so this summer, what we're going to do is we're going to go to the book of Romans. Very specifically, we're going to Romans chapter 5. And the reason we're going to go to Romans chapter 5, brothers and sisters, is because in Romans chapter 5, what the Apostle Paul does is he reaches back to Genesis and Adam... And he draws the divine connection for us between Adam and Genesis and the gospel and every aspect, and I mean every aspect of your life and mine, our church life, our work, our marriages, our family. He draws the connection. They are all connected, not separate. And so this, in a way, is our preparation through the Word of God and through the words of the Apostle Paul to get us ready for the Gospel of Matthew in the fall. And it's with these God-breathed words that the Apostle Paul wrote first to the saints in Rome, but that book of Romans, or the epistle to Romans, was probably a circular letter, and it's been found throughout many churches without Rome listed in it, which means it was probably copied, and the Apostle Paul probably intended that it would be given not just to the church in Rome, but to the saints everywhere. In it, as you know and you're aware of, the Apostle Paul presents the gospel. And in it, he shows us that 
The gospel is indeed good news. Why? Because the gospel is indeed, Romans 1.16, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. And I want us to pause here for a minute. I mean, I mean, I know we've heard that many times and we talk about it. But let's consider exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying in Romans 1.16. That the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Let me ask you a question, brothers and sisters. How many of us think of the gospel... As the power of God Almighty. The power of God Almighty. Not some ticket to get us into heaven after we die. As the power of God Almighty. How many of us think of the gospel as the power of God in our lives 24-7? How many of us think of the gospel as the power of God that is necessary for every aspect of our lives? Our work, our marriages, our parenting, our struggles with bullies, our difficult co-workers, our unreasonable managers or bosses, and the list goes on and on. Brothers and sisters, how often, how quickly, how urgently do we look to the gospel when times are hard, when things are not going the way we'd hoped or planned? When we have failed or our world is falling apart. Kevin Al was reminding us this morning during prayer time. How often, brothers and sisters, when we're struggling, do we go to the Lord first in prayer? Or how often do we go to Him last after everything we've tried has failed? Brothers and sisters, how often, how quickly, how urgently, how desperately do we look to the gospel as the only power that is greater than all the powers of this world, including the powers of my problems and my pain? Well, as you read through the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Romans, and I encourage you to do so this summer, And as we read through the book of Acts and book club, for the apostles and for the apostle Paul, the gospel is indeed the power of God. For the apostles and for the apostle Paul, the gospel is the word and declaration of the same almighty God. It is the word and declaration that has come out of the same mouth that created the world In six literal days, by the power of His Word. Same Word. The Word of God. And the same Word that has the power to create the universe in six literal days. Has the same power in and through the words of the Gospel. Power to recreate and make completely new sinners who are broken.
by sin and death in this world. For the Apostle Paul, the gospel is God's declaration of what he has done to save sinners from his wrath through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I know I'm asking a lot of questions this morning, brothers and sisters. It's because we don't tend to think of the gospel in this way. I along with you. How often do we think of God's holy wrath and judgment against sin as a problem that we need to worry about? How many nights do you stay up, unable to sleep, worried and terrified about the wrath of God against our sin? Or the wrath of God against the sin of our neighbors. Or the sin of the people on our street. Brothers and sisters, how often do we weep over that? How often, like Thomas Jefferson, do we believe that we are essentially good people? That we are actually better than most. Law-abiding, good jobs, decent, go, you know, get the right amount in our 401k plan, bake cookies, walk the old ladies across the street, don't get drunk, take our kids to school. How often, just like Thomas Jefferson, do we believe we are essentially good people and better than most? And therefore, God's holy wrath against sin is the least of my problems. How often, brothers and sisters, do we feel that we have absolutely no need for the gospel except on Sundays? How often do we feel that there's very little need for the power of God in our daily lives until we get stuck? How many of us, brothers and sisters, are living in our own power rather than the power Jesus himself died to give to you and I? Well, in Romans chapter 5, which is where we're going this morning, the Apostle Paul shows us that regardless of whether we know it or believe it, without exception, the greatest need of each and every one of us is not social justice or freedom of speech. The greatest need is for the power and the greatness and the goodness of the gospel to abound yet more in your life and mine. And that is because the power of the gospel is the only power that is greater than the power of sin and death in this world. And behind all those things that grieve us, social justice, tyranny, systemic racism, all of those different things, brothers and sisters, behind it all and above it all, whether we agree or not, and whether we see it or not, or whether we talk about it or not, is the power of sin and death that controls this world, this nation, and the hearts of all men. And this brings us to our second point, this morning. Can you uh, thank you? All men desperately need a grace 
that is greater than our sin. All men desperately need a grace that is greater than our sin. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to Romans chapter 5, which is our primary text this morning. And I will read from verse 12 through 15. Reading from the English Standard Version. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through man's sin, excuse me, if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Now you'll notice in this text, which some say is one of the hardest texts in the entire Bible. I didn't realize that when I decided we'd use it for the text today. But you'll notice that the Apostle Paul spends a lot of time talking about sin. I had one brother share with me that when he first came to this church, he was kind of shocked and surprised about how much we, and we meant me, talked about sin. And this was a brother who was raised in the church, conservative evangelical church. And yet I understand in many ways and sympathize with what he was saying. And I understand that it seems strange and weird when we talk about sin. Because we live in a time and place, brothers and sisters, where most people, including professing Christians, we don't like to talk about sin. It's uncomfortable to talk about sin. We live, brothers and sisters, as if sin is not a part of our lives. That's for all those terrible people out there. And quite frankly, most people don't even know what sin is. And when I say most people, I'm including professing Christians in America. If you went down and said, well, what's sin? Most people, when we talk about sin and when we do talk about it, we talk about it as if it's a whoops, a mistake, an accident. I didn't know any better, or well, it just happened, or it's a mistake. That's what we talk about. We talk about it like it's an accident, like it's a trivial part of our lives. Like I stepped on someone's shoe. And when you think about that, brothers and sisters, we tend to think and talk about sin, even we as believers, as if it's personal, as if it's private, as if it's individual. And this is interesting. We tend to talk about it like our unalienable rights. It's my right. It's none of your business. Mind your own business. That's personal. That's private. It's an individual act. But as we come to Romans, and we come to this section, but as you read the entirety of Romans, you'll see the Apostle Paul talks an awful lot about sin, and he doesn't talk about it as if it's a whoops. He doesn't talk about it as if it's an accident, 
And I find it interesting how we in America and even in the church, we tend to talk about not just sin as a whoops, we talk about kids as a whoops, we talk about life as a whoops, we talk about a lot of things as if they're just accidents. But for the Apostle Paul, sin and death are not accidents. And life is not an accident either, brothers and sisters. Sin and death are not small. And they're not a small and trivial part of our lives. They're not personal rights. They are not private things. As we listen to the Apostle Paul, we see that he looks at sin and talks about sin. And as you look at the entirety of Scripture, you see God talks about sin as a defining and determinative power and principle. A defining and determinative power and principle. It's not my single little act that I did when nobody was looking. What do we mean by defining and determinative? For the Apostle Paul, sin and death define and determine who we are. Sin and death define what we do. Sin and death, regardless of who you are, determines where we will end up. All of us. Sin and death, brothers and sisters, affects all of us. And it's not a little part of our lives. Apart from Christ, it's the biggest part of our lives. And in Romans 14.23, the Apostle Paul describes sin as whatever does not proceed from faith. Whatever does not proceed from faith. Can I have my next slide, please? Thank you. Faith here being trust in the truth of God. Trust in God's Word. Trust, very specifically, in the Gospel. That is what the Apostle Paul is talking about. Whatever does not flow from that, does not proceed from that. Trust and confidence, an entire life submitted to the Gospel, is sin. Suddenly, in Paul's language, sin is like ginormous. It's not this little mistake or accident in my life. And as you look through Scripture and the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Romans, you see that sin is any lack of conformity to God's will and His Word in attitude, not just our actions, in attitude, in thought, or action, both passive or active. Both passive or active. I didn't know any better. It just happened. Passive or active, brothers and sisters, any lack of conformity to God's will and word in attitude, thought, or action. As you walk through the scriptures, the root of all sin is hatred and disbelief in the truth of God and His word. Hatred and disbelief in the truth of God and His word. We talked about this as we went through Genesis. And the aim of all sin, the goal of all sin, is autonomy. Freedom, independence, the right to do whatever I want to do, the right to say whatever I want to say, the right to be whoever I want to be, male, female, cat, or dog. 
The aim of all sin is autonomy, which is the prideful, selfish, and idolatrous replacing of God with self. Who are you to tell me what to do? I'm God. I'm a Marvel superhero. I get to do whatever I want to do. I'm the king of me. And it's none of your business. And the end of all sin, according to God's word, brothers and sisters, is death. And that death is not just the biological cessation. That death is the spiritual, physical, and eternal separation and independence from the life and love of God and His Word. Now I know that seems like an awful lot, and it's a summary as you go through the Scriptures, and that summary, much of it has been taken from Romans, and it's also been taken from Dr. Mayhew and Dr. MacArthur's Biblical Doctrine book. And I know it's a lot, but hopefully for most of us in our church, this is really a summary of what we've been spending the last three or four months going through the book of Genesis to look at the heart and the root and the aim and the nature of sin as it was first brought into the world by Adam and Eve when they disobeyed God's command and they took the fruit that God commanded them not to eat of. And throughout Romans, brothers and sisters, this is what the Apostle Paul unpacks for us. And as he talks about sin, he uses the language of disease and corruption. And he uses the language of tyranny and terrorism to describe the predatory nature of sin and death in our world and in our personal lives. Sin and death is described as a cancer or a virus or a terrorist. Corruptions that hijack and take over the entirety of our lives. They spread through everyone and they spread to everyone. Ultimately destroying and making us unresponsive to all that is right and good. And brothers and sisters, if you've ever had a family member who has fought the battle with cancer... You understand what this is about. As cells in the body no longer respond or function in the way they were designed to function. And they are no longer a help, but they become rogue. And they multiply and spread. And as they spread and think only about themselves, they destroy everything else. And the only remedy, brothers and sisters, is to remove that cancer and eradicate and destroy until there is nothing left in that body and then we say you're in remission. It has taken over. It has spread through everything and to everything. And in the Old Testament... And you see, as Paul talks about it this way, we see that Paul is not coming up with something new. In the Old Testament, God gave the children of Israel a picture and an illustration to understand this. And it was the disease of leprosy. 
And for those of you who are going and reading through the law and Numbers and Leviticus and all those strange laws, the Lord is giving them a picture illustration. And he's tying it back to Genesis. And he's showing that when Adam sinned and the curse came in and sin came and corrupted, it corrupted not only our souls in the image of God, it corrupted our bodies as well. None of it was functioning the way God had designed it to function, which is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Instead, it's all turned more inward, serving us. And that illustration of leprosy is it shows as parts of the body begin to deteriorate, no longer have feeling and no longer have sensitivity and no longer function as the way it's supposed to. And lepers are walking around and they're injuring themselves because they don't feel the scrapes or they can't take care of themselves. They've lost that sensitivity. But it's also dangerous because it can spread to the entire community. So in an era before mass, they would remove everyone with leprosy outside of the city. They would quarantine them. And anything their clothes or anything that they came in contact with needed to be destroyed or burned. And God was providing a picture illustration of what sin does both in our spirit and our bodies and in the community. It is not personal, it is not private, it is corporate and universal and it affects everyone. It's not a small problem, brothers and sisters, it's a big problem. It's not just your problem, brothers and sisters, it's my problem too. Brothers and sisters, if you've ever worked or spent time in an ICU and you've ever been there in that ICU bed and you've seen those people who are struggling with septic shock where their bodies are filled with bacteria and everything is shut down and they are quarantined and you have to walk in and you have to wash your hands and wear a face mask separate and you see that person in their entire life isolated and being destroyed and non-responsive. You're seeing a similar illustration of what sin does individually but corporately. Now in biblical counseling, we talk about life-dominating sins. Life-dominating sins where sin has taken control so much that it's running everything. And we tend to think of those life-dominating sins as homosexuality, substance abuse, drunkenness. But brothers and sisters, as you read through Paul's epistles, you see that there are things like bitterness, greed, covetousness, malice. And Paul warns and says, don't let a root, while it's in the book of Hebrews, don't let a root of bitterness contaminate the whole. Don't let the sun go down in your anger, lest Satan get a foothold. That sins, whether they're big or small, if they are not addressed, brothers and sisters, they take over the entirety of our lives and our homes and our families. That is the nature and the power and the principle of sin. And brothers and sisters, if you've ever been in a home or a family or had a roommate who has struggled with bitterness and discontent, you understand how that seed in their life, whether they don't have a spouse or they don't have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or they don't have the job that they want or someone has offended them. And as that is not resolved and it continues to grow and grow and grow in their life, you've seen how it takes over their entire life where everything that comes out of their mouth and heart is that bitter 
bitterness and discontent and how it affects an entire meal or an entire family or an entire community, brothers and sisters. And Paul is just showing us, brothers and sisters, what sin is. And he's showing us that sin and death are to be understood as predatory powers and principles that are an abomination, an enemy of all that is holy and good, according to God's Word. That sin and death are predatory powers in our lives, which a good God, a good God, He must judge and destroy. He's showing us, brothers and sisters, that sin and death are not a trivial small part of our lives. They're not private, they're not personal, they are corporate, and they are universal. And brothers and sisters, this is the context of Romans 5, 12 through 14, what we just read. And I believe our distorted view of sin is one of the reasons why this text is so hard to understand, because we come to it with these eyes of sin, that it's this small, trivial, private, personal aspect of our lives, which is nobody else's business. And to help us understand as we go through Romans 5, 12 through 14 about why we need a grace that is greater than our sin, why we need an incredible power in our lives, a power that is greater than anything this world has to offer. Think of all the places we look to to help us out when we're in a tight squeeze. Finances, money, friends, relationships, pastors, Well, Paul is here showing us, brothers and sisters, you need a power far greater than that to resolve what really is the problem in your life and mine. And to help us understand that, he takes us in Romans 5.12 back to the beginning. He takes us back to Genesis 2 to show us how through one man and this one man's life, this one man's choice, this one man's disobedience, this one man's sin... Sin like a plague came into the world, and through sin came death. And so death like a plague spread from patient zero, not to some men, but to all men. Why? Well, the Apostle Paul explains. He says, because all, all means without exception, without regard for color, education, or class, all sinned. Now, very clearly, the Apostle Paul relies on some very, very, very important and foundational assumptions from Genesis as he talks about sin. The first assumption is that Adam is not a myth. Adam is a historical person. That's how he talks about Adam, here and everywhere else in Paul's letters. That there was literally a historical first man from whom every human being is descended, regardless of color, regardless of gender, regardless of language. We are all sons and descendants of Adam. Well, that's a principle that goes a long way against all the ways we divide up the world. What color your skin is, what class, how wealthy... That we are all descendants and sons of Adam. And therefore, there is a spiritual and physical connection. 
a spiritual and physical unity, a spiritual and physical solidarity among all human beings. That means, brothers and sisters, your problems are my problems. I can't say, oh, those Asians, oh, those white folks, oh, those whatever they are, oh, those sinners over there, their problems are my problems. We're corporate, we're connected. Now that goes against the way we like to think in America. The way we like to think in America is that's your problem. If that does damage to you, go at it. It only is a problem when it becomes my problem. The Apostle Paul is pointing out we're connected. And in a local church, brothers and sisters, that's why we jump up and down when things aren't going well, when you're having a hard time, when you're going through a grievance. Why? If we're connected, that should be my grievance too. When you weep, I should weep. When you rejoice, I should rejoice. All human beings have with Adam the first man. And we have with one another this unity, this connection, this solidarity. The second implication or assumption is that Adam is the legal head and representative and the father of all humanity. Now, I'm going to yank your cord a little bit. Go back to Genesis 2. Who was it? Or excuse me, Genesis 3. Who was it who first sinned? Do you recall? You can say it out loud. Who was it who first sinned? It was the woman. The first woman, right? But who here does Paul refer to as being the instrument to blame the vehicle through which sin and death entered not only into the world, but into the life of every child, every son and daughter of Adam, every human being? doesn't stick his finger out at the woman. It's the first man. Why does he do that? Who does the Lord hold accountable? Who is the representative head? Who is the leader? Who is the father? It's the first man. Adam is the head. And just as the Lord God showed Adam and Eve... In the garden, with his judgment of their sin in Genesis 3, there is both a personal and a corporate aspect to our sin. A personal and corporate aspect to our sin. Not only does my personal sin bring curse and judgment on me, but it also directly affects those who are connected to me. Now we know this in family life. My children know this. Why are they American? Because their dad decided to immigrate from Canada and chose to become an American citizen. That's why they're American and not Canadian. That's why they live here and not there. Why are they pastor's children? Did they have any choice in the matter? Not really. Their father decided to leave the field of medicine and become a pastor. They had no choice in the matter. Those decisions that their father, the head of their home, made has affected the entire trajectory of their life. I will bear the full responsibility of that, but it affects them too. And brothers and sisters, when we sin, guess what? It doesn't affect just you, even if no one can see it or hear it. 
affects everybody. When I first came to this church, people told me in the singles ministry what I heard from a distance and far as, oh, oh. Fellowship is hard for singles in Silicon Valley. Work, long hours, all of these things. Fellowship is hard. It's just hard for people to connect. And I'm going to be frank here. If you're visiting, you get to visit with the family. And as I spent time here, and I spent time with the young men, I discovered that 8 out of 10 men were struggling with the sin of pornography. There, it's not secret. It's out in the open. I had a young sister come to me and said, you shouldn't just preach about pornography to men. You need to address the women too. We're talking about it in the pulpit. And then we're surprised, brothers and sisters, when we gather together after we've been looking at that and that has ruled and dominated our lives, that we come together, men and women, and we're awkward and we're ashamed and we're uncomfortable and we have a hard time connecting with one another. Now that's a graphic and terrible description, but how about greed? How about covetousness? How about career? How about when everything in our mind is how to make as much money in the stock market or to get to the next startup? Brothers and sisters, does that come in and fill our hearts with love and gracious and kindness for those who are weak and struggling? It takes us far, far, far away from the love of Christ. And in verse 12, the Apostle Paul shows us, because of our physical and spiritual solidarity and union with Adam and one another, because he is our legal head, our representative, and our father before God, his sin and death is not just his problem, it's all of our problem. We have all inherited a corrupted and sinful nature from Adam, and God's curse and judgment of Adam's sin and the world affects us all. Every aspect of our lives, not part, But every aspect of our lives is ruled and corrupted by the power of sin and death. And then in verse 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul shows both the biblical and historical proof for this. Whether like those from Adam through Moses, your sin is held accountable by God's word or not, whether you know, whether the law has come and held you accountable, whether you're a tribesman in Papua New Guinea who's never heard the gospel before, or you're those who sit in this church every day, regardless, our end is the same. We will all die. Why is that? Whether we are judged or held accountable in this life or not, sin is still present in our lives. And death still rules. Whether you are Steve Jobs, George Floyd, or John MacArthur, our end and their end in this life will be the same. All will die. In the next life it may be different. But nobody escapes the power of sin and death. And because we are all sons of Adam, in Adam we have all sinned. We are ruled by sin. Now I know this is hard to take, and I know this is hard to understand. But brothers and sisters, I want you to consider for a moment. How much do we embrace all of these principles when it comes to COVID-19? 
even if a few are infected, how often do all of us wear masks? How often are we concerned about what other people are doing and how it's going to affect us? Brothers and sisters, how often do you consider that a virus that we cannot see with the naked eye, that none of us have actually been in the lab and verify, has brought an entire world to its knees and brought everything to a stop, and for the past year has controlled our behaviors our activities, and our relationships, and even how we interact with one another. And like our sin, we can pretend it doesn't exist on the one hand. Or on the other hand, we can become fanatics where we're showering every time we go home, and we cover ourselves from head to toe. And we refuse to go out or see anyone or have anybody in our house go out and see. You can have these two extremes. And in the church, we handle sin in the same way. It's either doesn't exist, no big deal, to micromanage. And we've seen both in the church and in the world. And yet, brothers and sisters, what's the real remedy? It's not to stay like that. It's to find a power that can destroy the virus inside us and protect us from the virus inside us so that we can walk around and be free. Even Rand Paul talks about herd immunity. To the point, however, it is destroyed that it is destroyed in your life and mine, and that there is a power present that can destroy it so that we are no longer slaves of what lives inside us and around us. Is it weird that we talk so much about sin? Is it strange for us to hear firemen talking about fires? Is it strange for us to hear policemen talk about crime? Is it odd to hear physicians talk about disease and illness? Brothers and sisters, it is not when the remedy is close at hand. And the reason Paul has taken all this time to show us what sin truly is and how much it controls every aspect of our lives He doesn't do it for morbid introspection. He does it for a reason and a purpose. He does it to show us that the only remedy that exists, the only power that is great enough to destroy sin and death in our lives and in this world, God has already given us. It's in the gospel. And it is in and through the gospel that God gives us a power that is greater than sin and death. And in verse 14, he shows us Adam is a type, or if you will, a prototype, a pattern, an example of the one who was to come. And just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so too through one man, God's grace entered into the world. And God's life entered through His grace, with one big difference. God's grace is greater than our sin. 
And this brings us to our final point, and I'll tie up with this. Could I have my uh, next slide, please? God's grace, brothers and sisters. God's grace in Christ is greater than the power of sin and death for all who believe in Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul writes in verse 15. He says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And what is this free gift, brothers and sisters? What is this free gift of grace? The grace that is greater than Adam's trespass and the grace that is greater than the sin and death of this world. Well, it's not the grace of my 401k plan. It's not the grace of my career, my education, or my job. Have a look at Romans 5 verse 6. Go back up to Romans 5 verse 6. Romans 5 verse 6 reads, For while we were still weak, sick, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might or one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. This is the grace, brothers and sisters, and this is God's gift of grace. It's the life of His Son. It's the holy life of His Son that He gave on the cross. It's the forgiveness of your sins and mine, past, present, and future. It's release from the bondage of sin and death. It's called justification. Where God makes right what we cannot make right. Where God fixes in our marriages, our work, our parenting, our shepherding. What we could never fix ourselves and what we have broken. The free gift of God's grace that saves us by making us whole and making us holy. A grace that is greater than our sin that saves us from the wrath of God. And this is what Jesus is showing in the scripture that we read this morning in Mark 7. Brothers and sisters, how often do we think of the gospel and God's grace in Christ as greater than our sin and our death, as greater than the problems we face, as greater than the wickedness that we have to deal with in our world and in our lives? Brothers and sisters, how often do we think of grace as a life-dominating principle and power that destroys sin and everything that separates us from the life and love of God. That's how Paul's describing grace. A power that comes into your life and that destroys everything that separates you from the life and love of God. A power that comes in that is not private and not personal, 
but a living and holy fire from above that sets our lives on fire for the Lord inside out. Brothers and sisters, for those among us who are weak and struggling and faint-hearted, the remedy is not beating ourselves like Catholic priests and becoming self-absorbed over our sin. Instead, brothers and sisters, it's embracing the cross and it's embracing a grace that is greater than our sin and death. But there's one caveat, brothers and sisters. Can I have my final slide for this morning? This is an image that Sonia was kind enough to prepare for me. And in it, it's just a summarization of what Paul is describing here in Romans 5, 12 through 14. There are only two family lines and there are only two races in God's eyes. They're not Asian and everything else. You're either a son of Adam or you're a son of Christ. You're either growing and living out a life that is dominated by sin and the power of sin and death and yielding thorns of bitterness, malice, anger, and all of those different things. Or you're living in Christ and you're united with Him. And what separates the two is the cross and faith. And if you look at what the Apostle Paul says the gospel is, he says it's the power of salvation to who? All those terrible sinners out there? We have a tendency to think of the gospel as all those people who are not saved. No, he says it's the power of God to everyone who what? Believes. The gospel, brothers and sisters, is power in the life of those who believe. Those who, by faith, will turn from their sin and place their trust and hope entirely in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that He will be their King. It's for those who believe, brothers and sisters. And if you do not believe, then it is not a power that enters into your life. It will be a power that destroys your life. I shared with my sons that name, gospel, from the Greek, euangelion. It's a technical term. It's a divine proclamation from the king. When a king won a territory or conquered a country, he would send his ambassadors and heralds through that area to make the announcement. This king has conquered and he is now Lord. And as he goes through those villages and those territories, declaring that he is the new Lord and king, you who live in those villages, that he has conquered, you've got two options. You can take your sword and you can surrender your sword to the king. Or you can hang on to the sword and continue to fight. You can't have both. And the challenge of the gospel, brothers and sisters, it is indeed a power that is life-dominating and greater than sin and death that transforms us inside out into the goodness and holiness and grace of God, just like it did in the Apostle Paul. But, brothers and sisters, you cannot hang on to your sin and you cannot hang on to your sword And claim the gospel and the good news. 
You cannot hang on to your sin and you cannot hang on to your sword and have Christ at the same time. You cannot hang on to your bitterness, your anger, your wrath, your covetousness and have Christ at the same time. He will not permit it. He is worthy of more. So you have to make a choice. Am I going to let go of this and stop trusting in my sin? Am I going to start trusting in the Christ who has already conquered by way of the cross? If you surrender, brothers and sisters, His grace will destroy every aspect of sin in your life. When there are those who come to me and say they're struggling with sin, they're discouraged, they're downtrodden, I actually get excited. I'm more excited when they're relieved of it, but at least they're at the place where they're being sensitized and they're being broken and they're beginning to see their need for a grace that is greater than their sin. And in all of these things, what the Apostle Paul is looking for is that grace would dominate so our lives would be obedient to faith. And brothers and sisters, that's where he's going with this. And so I want you to consider as a practical application, brothers and sisters, each of us, to consider in our lives what is one way or one aspect in our lives that we struggle with a specific sin. Anger, bitterness, discontent, whatever it is. And consider how Christ is calling you to place that on the altar and let go of your sword and surrender. And allow Christ's grace to come into your life and dominate and set you free. It does not mean you will not suffer. It does not mean you will not struggle. It does not mean that one day we will still die. What it does mean is that those things will not control our lives... And like Jesus, who died at the cross and did suffer, we will be raised up, and the lives that we live will be lives of glory and grace that come from above, rather than the sin and death that rules our lives. What choice will you make? Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, your grace is greater than our sin. Your declaration of independence sets us free. But Lord Jesus, to be independent of sin, we must become weak and dependent on You. So Lord, give us faith and take away our unbelief. Lord Jesus, show us Your grace. In Your name we pray. Amen. Have the opportunity to celebrate the Lord's table together. If you're a member of the family of God, if Jesus is your Lord, if you are reconciled with Him and reconciled with one another, then this is your opportunity to come to the Lord's table. A family meal, a gathering for all of those who belong to the household of God. To break bread and to drink of the cup, which are symbols and signs of the life that Christ gave and a grace that is greater than our sin, and to celebrate the goodness of the Lord that is living and present in us 
and that is present here with us. If that's you, the ushers will come down. They will motion to you. You'll have an opportunity to take the cup, take a piece of bread, take it back to your seat. Through this time, we'll sing a praise song, and then together we'll consider together as a family our solidarity and unity with Christ and with one another. If there is unrepentant sin in your life or unresolved conflict in your life, we ask that you abstain and that you take this opportunity to go to the Lord and go to those you are estranged with and to enjoy the fellowship that God's grace can only give. And then, together, celebrate the goodness of God's grace.
team. Brothers and sisters, this is, excuse me, a family meal that's made possible by Christ. Romans 5, 6 reads, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, Shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul also adds early in the chapter, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, we're not enemies and we're family. Spiritually and hopefully physically soon, we don't have to wear masks around one another, figuratively. Because the sin that separates us, brothers and sisters, Christ and the shame that separates us and the guilt that separates us, Christ himself has taken for his children on the cross for those who believe. And he has taken those who were once enemies and made them children of a God most holy and children of a grace that is greater than our sin. If this, brothers and sisters, applies to you, then you are part of the family of God. And let us celebrate the grace in which we stand by celebrating the crucifixion and the death 
and the blood and the life that was given for you. Let's take the bread and the cup together. Brothers and sisters, I was listening. I was sharing with my boys a Nine Marks podcast this morning about the Lord's table as we drove in this morning. And it was a pastor who was originally born in India. And he made the point that the Lord's Supper is a memory, a reflection. It's a memorial. It's a consideration. But it's also an anticipation that this is a foretaste. This is not permanent. Of the grace that will come when Christ comes again and we sit together at the love feast. And he made mention of the fact that in his home he likes to cook curry, but before the dinner is served, he takes the spoon out and he gives his family a lick. Brothers and sisters, that's the Lord's table. That it's a taste of the grace and mercy that is greater than our sin, but it's only an anticipation of the grace that will come when Christ comes in person. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for the grace that you have given. And as we do this Lord's Supper together, we proclaim your death until you come again. And when we see you, we will be like you. And every sorrow and tear will be removed. Sin will be gone completely in our lives. And we will celebrate at the wedding feast of the Lamb. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, Our brother Ted, I believe, is going to...